Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Good morning. Um, One of the things I do every Sunday morning is uh, I check my email and I check the news. Because years ago there was a massive tragedy and we went through one whole gathering and right before I got up to preach at the next, someone sat down next to me and said, you hear about this? And I wish I had known. And the thing that's really terrible about this is one of the reasons I check the news is to see if there's another tragedy that's unfolded. And you may be aware uh, that last night around 10 p.m. local time, uh, there was another mass shooting, this time in Los Angeles, that seemed to target uh, a Lunar New Year party, uh, killing 10, injuring 10 more. And um, I suppose if you're like looking for words of insight from me, I just don't have any, other than the cry that so many of us have of like, how long, O Lord, or when will this stop, or enough of the violence. And um, I'm sure we'll hear all the common tropes. I always send our thoughts and prayers. And every time I hear that, I think of the proverb, like don't ask God to feed the hungry family down the street when you have a cupboard full of food. Like stop saying I'm gonna pray for this when we actually can do something, not only about guns, which by the way, If that feels a little bit political, over 70% of the American population believes we should have common sense gun laws. In the words of President Obama, if you can't get on a plane, you probably shouldn't be able to buy a gun. And most people actually agree with that. And so do something. Reach out in droves to your representatives, to your senators. Demand change. But then there's also the problem of violence. We live in a country that extols, celebrates, and worships violence. If you don't believe me, just turn on the television and start watching any one of your favorite television shows or films, and you'll see it all over the place. And we seem numb to it. Murders and beatings and everything else. And we can't live in a culture that's saturated in it without taking some of it within ourselves. And living in a way that's hostile and violent. My wife said to me the other day, she's like, I'm so tired of this like anger and violence. 
And she says that as a part of this faith community as we are, who says we want to be a healing presence in our culture, which would speak toward being a healing presence toward the violence and the anger that we see. I don't know what world you occupy day in and day out. I don't know where you go to school, where you work, where you live. But maybe we actually begin thinking together in helpful ways of what does a healing presence look like in a concrete way in our world right now. And then I think there's also a place that we have a lot to learn in called grief. Like some of you are just hearing about the shooting right now. I get that. I, I know that because I know some of our staff didn't even know about it. And we'll go on from today and God knows what we'll do. Brunch, maybe some football games, getting together with friends. But there's 10 families and groups of friends who are going to be weeping and grieving and burying and eulogizing people who died again because of this senseless violence. And there is something that happens when a group of people come together even from a distance and begin to take on and share some of that grief with the world. Remember it said of Jesus, he was a friend of grief. He was acquainted with it. He embraced it. Because when he saw it, he knew what it meant to, meant to be one who laments. And so this morning, um, I'm reminded of what Paul says, when we don't know what to pray, the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf in wordless groans. And I don't know what to pray. Like, I'm, I'm just tired of this unbelievable news. And like, we'll forget about it in six months. We'll be like, the shooting in Los Angeles, which one? You mentioned a shooting at a school. Oh, I forgot about that one. We're barely in the January and there's more mass shootings than there are days. I don't know what to pray. I don't know what advice to offer. I don't know how to make it better. Other than continuing to name it and talk about it and demand that we do something more than just send out a tweet about gun violence because now you're reminded of it or offer thoughts and prayers while doing nothing. So we're just going to take some time and just be quiet. And whatever comes up in you to pray, pray it. And if there's nothing, remember the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf in wordless groans before God. As your people cry out, how long, O Lord? We simply say, Christ, have mercy. Amen. Uh, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 8. Uh, we've been walking through the Gospel of Luke for a while. By the way, if you don't have a Bible, there's one beneath the chair in front of you or near you in the page number on this. Uh, there's no page number on the screen. The Bible underneath it. Um, seat in front of you, or you can follow along on your device. 
um, Jesus is speaking here. What we're going to do this morning is he makes kind of four, we'll call them wisdom sayings or statements that seem kind of out there, but we'll do our best to maybe take in the whole context of what he's talking about and gain some understanding. Verse 16, he says, No one lights a lamp and hides it in a clay jar or puts it under a bed. Instead, they put it on a stand so that those who come in can see the light. For there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. Therefore, consider carefully how you will listen. Whoever has will be given more, and whoever does not have, even what they think they have will be taken from them. Now Jesus' mother and brothers came to see him, but they were not able to get near him because of the crowd. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to see you. And Jesus replied, my mother and brothers are those who hear the word of God and put it into practice. Now how many of you have ever come to the Bible and read some verses and had no idea what they mean? How many of you, is that the case oftentimes? Let's just be honest. Like the Bible's weird. It's just a bizarre, it's ancient Eastern literature. And one of the things that I believe is that the the loss of our ability to read these ancient sacred texts is actually a cultural loss for us. And oftentimes what what I've seen, at least in my own, is that when it comes to particular verses, we can read them and it feels like you're kind of walking into the middle of a movie, doesn't it? Like you walk into a room and your friends or your family are there and they're watching a movie and you sit down next to them and like on the screen somebody walks into a room and they're like, oh my goodness. And you think to yourself, like, why is this a big deal? And then you say, who's that? And they're like, shh, shh, shh. And then someone else walks in, and you're like, yes. And you're like, who's that? And I'm like, shh. And you just start watching it. You have no idea what's going on. Anyone ever had that experience? Is this not what it feels like sometimes reading the Bible? You read some verses, and you're like, no idea what's happening here. And these verses can feel that way because it's just four sayings. One about light, one about what's hidden being revealed, one about having things and not having things, and then another one about family. But one of the things that might be helpful when it comes to the text is to read larger portions of it. Now, that's difficult in our context because if you've ever spent time in the Bible, you notice that there are on most pages a big number representing a chapter and smaller numbers representing a verse. And in some Bibles, there's even headings that break up the text into smaller and smaller portions. Now, that was done so that people would have an easier time finding their place and so people would be able to reference certain spots, but that's not the way it was written. When Luke wrote his gospel, when Paul wrote his letters, when the other gospelers wrote theirs, they were read all at one time in large portions. One of the things I did last year during my sabbatical is I grabbed a Bible, figured out how many pages were in it, divided it by the number of days I'd be on sabbatical, and read the Bible cover to cover. And something grabs you when you read the Bible like literature, like a book, where you just read long portions of it, where there might be, sure, some parts that don't make sense, but when you take in the larger whole, something begins to like light up, and you're like, oh, I think I have some sort of insight I didn't have before. And it's possible that's what's happening here. 
Because these verses we just read are very connected to the verses that come before it when Jesus tells a parable that we know as the parable of the sower. And if you were with us last week, Amanda taught not one, but three sermons on the parable of the sower. I'm just, still, I'm just sticking to one. That's all I can handle. And, and one of the things that she pointed out was, was this idea of the reckless generosity of the sower just throwing seed everywhere. And Jesus says, after he tells the parable, that seed, that reckless generosity, that's the word of God. And then the second thing he talks about is this idea of soil. And he says soil represents how you hear the word of God. So before the statements we just read about light, about hidden, hiddenness and, and being uh, uh, revealed, and about this idea of having and having not, and this idea of family, there's a whole story where Jesus is playing around with two ideas, two ideas being the word of God and hearing. Now remember, Jesus is in a very particular context, a very particular cultural context. Just like we are in 21st century Denver, Jesus was in his own context called first century Israel. And we know that Jesus during this time of his life and ministry was not just in Israel, he was in the northern part of Israel, which was a very devout and orthodox area of the country. And so these two words, these two ideas, word and hear, would have meant something to those who were hearing this story. And maybe if we can gain some insight on those words, we might gain some insight on the four wisdom sayings that Jesus puts forward. So, so the first idea is this idea of the word of God. Now, if you've grown up in or around the church or even casually are familiar with Christianity, you might know that the idea, word of God, is most often another phrase for the Bible. And when someone says the word, they're speaking specifically and oftentimes only of the Bible. But if you read the Bible, what you'll quickly discover is that the word or the word of God is not only the Bible, while it includes it, it's also far bigger than the Bible. And the Bible actually points to the fact that the Word of God is bigger than it. The Bible rarely refers to itself as the Word of God. Now, some of you might be listening, and you're like, this, this feels dangerous. Because it feels like you're kind of like opening things up beyond the Bible. And in the world I grew up in, the Bible was like basic instructions before leaving earth and like it meant everything. It was foundational, like this is it. Well, what's interesting is when, when people feel a little bit of nervousness around it, one of the things that it tells me is that what we've learned is somebody's interpretation of the Bible. Because if you read the Bible, the Bible points to all sorts of things beyond itself that are revealing God. And it uses this term word, which in Hebrew is devar, and in Greek is logos, as this operating or ordering principle in the entire universe. And you see this in the text itself. In John's gospel, in the first, first chapter, he begins his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. 
and was with God in the beginning. Through the word, all things have been made. This is the idea of the ordering principle of the universe. Without the word, nothing has been made that's been made. He says the same thing in his letter to the church in 1 John. In Colossians, Paul talks about Jesus as the word and talks about how all things have been made by him, for him, through him, and in him. And in him, he says, everything holds together. The word is an ordering principle. The word is the thing that holds all things together. The word permeates every last square inch of the universe. Now consider how Jesus talked about the sower in the parable that comes before this. The sower is out there just scattering seed, throwing it all over the place, being reckless and generous with this thing. If the word is just the Bible, then he's like the Gideons, you know, like going into all the hotels and throwing Bibles in the nightstands. No, it means that this idea is that the word permeates everything. It's everywhere. It's available for all people in all places in all times. This is the image he's giving about this idea of the word that permeates everything. And then Jesus brings up this idea of, are you hearing it? Do you hear the word? He even finishes the parable by saying, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. Now again, Jesus is speaking to a Jewish crowd in a very orthodox, observant place. And the word hear also meant something. As a matter of fact, I'd argue that almost everybody there, when they heard the word hear, would have thought of the same thing. And what they would have thought of is the prayer that observant Jewish people have prayed for thousands of years, two times every day, and the prayer is called the Shema. The word Shema means hear. It's found in Deuteronomy 6. Before the actual prayer, Moses says to the people, hear this word of God so that it might go well with you in the land. And then he says, hear, O Israel, Shema Yisrael. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. These commands that I give you today, bind them on your arms and your foreheads and on the doorposts of your house. Teach them to your children and talk about them when you're lying down, when you're rising up, and you walk along the way. When you have a central confession or a prayer that's literally called hear, when Jesus says, whoever has ears, let them hear, and then he says the soil's about hearing, people are picking up what he's laying down. And the word hear, as they understood it, didn't mean just listen to me, please, or be able to spit back what you hear me saying. Hear was actually a fully embodied way of life. 81 different times in the Hebrew scriptures, if you read the word obey in English, the Hebrew word behind it is shema, hear. And for the ancient Eastern Jewish people, the idea of obeying was not just having like a list of rules or getting a handbook and you had to like not do certain things. It was actually an orientation to the world. It was a way of living your life. So what Jesus is saying here is, when he's talking about the word, he's talking about hearing, he's saying, listen, this word is everywhere. How will you orient your life to it? This word of God permeates the entire universe. Will you orient, respond to, live according to 
this word. He, he shares this deeper meaning with the disciples. And then Jesus says these four wisdom sayings. One about light, one about what's being hidden, one about what might be taken from you or what you might get, and one about family. All of these wisdom sayings are a reflection on the word and what we do with it, on whether or not we hear when we encounter the word of God, when we encounter that which permeates the universe. So let's go through them and begin to see what is Jesus actually trying to get at with these four sayings. The first saying is about light. And Jesus gives a very clear image about a light in a home. This is why he says you don't take a light and put it in a jar and hide it under your bed. By the way, in the first century crowd, there probably would have been laughter because it was kind of like one of those ideas like, well, of course not. In our sophisticated world, we're like, it's not that funny. We have so much light in our world now, like we, we have to wear sleep masks because our phones are on and our computer is blinking, the screensaver comes up, we get alerts and all these other things. We have too much light. If anything, yes, of course, we'd love to put it under our bed. But in the ancient context, light, especially in a house in northern Israel in the first century, was invaluable. It was a laughable, idiotic idea that you would ever do this with light. To give you a picture of what would have been in the minds of those listening, here's a picture of a first century home. This is in a northern village called Katsrin. And in Katsrin, what they've done is they did excavations and they found a small village in the northern part of Israel, not far from where Jesus grew up. And they, even though it's a few hundred years after Jesus, archaeologists have recognized this is what it would have looked like. Now, you can't see it well in this picture, but that stone is black basalt stone, so it's already very dark on both sides, which means it's not reflecting a whole lot of light. And if you notice the square that's kind of off to the upper right, that's a window, pretty high off the ground, and it's pretty small, high off the ground and small so that thieves couldn't get into your home, and you would do a, uh, make sure that the doors were locked, but that's the window. So it's not much light. Now, this is a picture inside this house. Now, one thing I want to point out is on the lower left, you'll notice some light coming through. That's actually a spotlight so that people can see. And then you'll notice there's some light coming through that window at the top. This is taken at about 2 in the afternoon on a sunny day. Not very bright. Some of you are like, but I love the open floor plan, you know. <laughs> I love the exposed brick walls. I'm more of a mid-mod person myself, whatever, I don't know. But this is the way it looked. Now, you see the ladder going up, and look just to the left of the ladder, and you see kind of like what looks like a lens flare. That's actually a light. You'll notice the dirt on the wall, the smoke on the wall, because that's an oil lamp that would have been used, among other oil lamps, to give light to the house. Now, here's how big the oil lamps are. If you're thinking to yourself, that doesn't look very big. Well, the guy has huge hands. No. Of course, no, they're very small. They're like less, smaller than the size of a dollar bill. And they give out one flame. And we were in this house last year when we were on our pilgrimage in Israel. And it was actually a very cloudy day. And they lit up a few of these lamps. And you needed every shred of light you could get just to see and not fall over other people because it was not bright at all. 
You needed light. You made sure you had these lamps. You made sure you had enough olive oil to put in the lamps and the wicks and everything else. So what Jesus is saying is this. Hey, when you get light, you know you need it and you're going to use it. You wouldn't be so foolish as to put it under your bed or put it under a jar. No! So what are you going to do with something you need even more called the Word? The thing that permeates the universe. How will you orient your life to it? Will you just put it away and ignore it? Will you not use what's been given to you? Or will you do something with it? And then Jesus in the next two statements about what's, be, what's been hidden being revealed and what you have being given more and what you have being taken away, it, those ones, those feel a little ominous. That's the word one scholar uses. These feel like ominous sayings of Jesus. They might even feel threatening. Now let me give you one observation, maybe another hint about how we might read the Bible. As I was reading through and studying through, one thing I noticed about these statements is there were two primary ways that people approach them. You see, there are some people who have a belief in an angry God that needs to be appeased by us, so if we do the right things, this God will be appeased and will welcome us into the pearly gates one day down the road. And, and those who don't appease this God, well, they're going to burn for eternity. And so when you come to verses where there is something that feels ominous or threatening, they're like, there it is. Yep. What's going to be hidden? All the things you've done wrong, everyone's going to know about it. And even the things you think you have, they're going to be taken from you before you're cast into this lake of fire. And by the way, those same people who can interpret passages like this, when they come to, to, to uh, passages where that feel like more universalistic, like it's God's will that no one will suffer, or every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, well, those ones, they tend to be like, well, I don't know what to do with that. Conversely, people who have a more, I would say, maybe loving picture of God come to verses like this, and they're like, I don't know what to say about them. That feels weird. Jesus feels abrasive, and Jesus was, like, never abrasive. I mean, Jesus is like my pal. He's great. He's awesome. You know, he's like a parent rubbing the head of a five-year-old, telling them they're great, and their art is awesome, even though we all know it's terrible. And so we largely ignore these passages. And then when there's passages that suit us, those are the ones that we go to. And what's interesting is both people who have this view of God that feel very opposite are actually practicing the same thing. They have a particular belief, they have a particular image of God, and when they come to the Bible or come to anything that somehow pushes against that, they either have to do some mental gymnastics to get around it or they just ignore it, or they just say it's wrong. Instead of coming to something being revealed to us and saying, oh, maybe I have it wrong. The church father Origen says, when we come to passages that disturb us, maybe they're there so that we will be disturbed. And maybe we should do the hard work of reading it in a way that comports with the glory and the beauty and the love of God. So when you come to a passage and you're like, this does not, like this, this doesn't sit right. Good. Dig. Ask questions. Hang out with people and be like, I read these really puzzling verses the other day, which is always a great conversation starter, by the way. So I was reading the Bible and people are like, oh my goodness, right? But what, it's getting into 
this text deeper. Now, here's one insight to keep in mind about the Bible. The Bible was written by Jewish people, with the exception of Luke, who we're reading right now. Jesus was Jewish. Now, I know that that is not necessarily a very big observation, but it's very easy to imagine Jesus as a Christian. And many imagine him as a white Christian, which makes things even worse. Jesus was Jewish. Jesus was influenced by Jewish thinking and by Jewish thinkers and by Jewish teachers. And what's fascinating is if you read the rabbis, there's a lot of sayings that are very similar to this idea of what's hidden being revealed and what you have being taken from you. Jesus is saying things and mixing things up in the culture of his day in language that people understood. And when you read the rabbis, these aren't threatening or abrasive. For them, it's common sense. Jesus says, what is hidden will be revealed. What's been concealed will be made known. What it means is this. You can only fake it for so long. Sure, the word of God is out there. The sower has spread the seed with reckless abandon. It's permeating the universe. All of us have an opportunity, are invited to orient our lives around it. And here's the truth Jesus is getting at. Some of us will really act outwardly as though we're hearing. But inside, not much is really going on at all. It's like performative religion, which happens, by the way, in all religions and in all stripes of religions. There's a little bit of legalist in all of us, if we're honest. There's this idea of like, yeah, you can only fake it for so long, and at some point, whatever's not going on in you, or whatever is going on in you, you're going to see it, and others are going to see it. If you grew up around the church or in a religious environment, you've seen this all the time. One day you hear some news about somebody. Did you hear about sister so-and-so? Did you hear about brother so-and-so? I don't know why I'm using like that as a title. I sound very Quaker, you know. <laughs> and you're like, no. And they're like, oh, man, yeah, they, uh, they did such and such and were caught with that and that. And people are always shocked. Well, the rabbis would say, yeah, don't you know what's been hidden is going to be made known and what's concealed is going to be revealed? At some point, it's all going to come spilling out. And so what Jesus is saying is like, hey, what's on the inside? What's really going on? When you receive this nonstop deluge of seed from the sower, when you confront and are confronted by this word that permeates the entire universe, what's really your response? Now, for some people, that can sound like a threat. For some people who have this like imposter syndrome of like, if people really knew, that can feel like, oh, what do I do with that? Because there are people who look at you and assume the best about you and inside you, you might be doing everything you can to stay away from what's there. For other people, this can be a great comfort. Maybe you were one of those who grew up in a religious environment where you were judged and condemned and had fingers pointing at you all the time and people told you about all the things that were wrong with you and what God was going to do with a sinner like you and all these other things. And inside you had this deep longing and heart for God and you would listen to the words that they were saying and think, if you only knew you wouldn't be making these judgments and assumptions and saying these things to me. Well, that longing within you, well, that will be made known too. It's just depending on 
how are you orienting your life around this power that permeates the universe? Jesus then makes this other comment that feels a little bit ominous. He says, to those who have, they'll be given more. And to those who think they have, even what they have will be taken away. Again, that one sounds like, oh, this just feels a little, not like six pound, eight ounce baby Jesus, right? But again, it's common sense in the minds of the ancient Jewish people. Basically, it's this. Whatever you have, you're expected to do something with it. What are you doing with what you have? I mean, just think about the way that we learn. Do you have, have any, like, mathematicians in here, people like you can just do math in your sleep, calculus was a breeze, any of you? I'm not going to mock you. <laughs> Some of you are like, yeah, you are, because clearly you were not one of those. Um, <laughs> no, I was terrible at math. Here's how I passed my junior year of algebra. I took the final exam. I had been tutored. I'm not kidding. I'm not saying this to be self-deprecating. This is 100% true. I had been tutored in math my freshman year, sophomore year, junior year. I worked so hard my junior year, got to the final exam. I was the last one in the classroom, sitting there sweating drops of blood onto the paper, and I walk up to the teacher after and hand it to him, and he says, do you want me to grade it now? And I said, yes, because I needed to know if I was going to pass this. So he goes through the whole thing, and I failed by two points. And he looked up at me, and I don't know what the look on his face was. Part of me thought the look on his face was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to have him for another year, you know? <laughs> I like to think it was, you've worked so hard and I'm having compassion, but I, that's not really what it was. So he said, okay, you failed by three. What if I give you an extra credit, credit question that's four points? I said, fine. He said, but it has to be algebra. I said, okay. He walks over to the whiteboard and writes two plus X equals four. And he's like, what's X? And I was like, Can I have another one? Can I have a phone a friend? You know, like, so I said two. And he wrote two, and gave me a high five and said, congratulations, you passed algebra. <laughs> now, you know how much I've done with math since? If you're thinking zero, which is not an integer, see, I have some stuff. Uh, you're exactly right, I've done nothing with it. Which means what? Have I progressed past junior algebra? No. By the way, for those of you who are here and you're like, wait a second, I give to this institution. I do not come anywhere near our bank accounts. <laughs> That's actually 100% true. For integrity's sake, yes, but also because people are like, Michael, who, who are we kidding? We'll trust you to preach, but not near the checkbook. Mm, that sounds responsible. But think about this. How, do you, how did you learn math for you mathematicians out there? Would you go back to your first grade self and like go, <laughs> I can't believe you're learning addition? No. Why? Because even though you might be like fluent in calculus, you needed what? You needed to learn addition first, didn't you? So when you were a little kid, you began learning just first about the meaning of numbers. There's one, and then there's how many apples, Bobby? Two. Good, Bobby, right? And then you learn three and four, and then you learn how every number is included in the number ahead of it. Then you begin learning addition. And once you get addition down, then you begin learning subtraction. And then once you get those two kind of nailed down, then you learn what? Multiplication. And then it's division. And then fractions. And then decimals. And then when they started putting letters in that stuff, I was out. But think about it. What happens is you're given something. What are you given? Numbers and knowledge about it. You gain a little bit of insight. 
Some light comes to you, your eyes open a little bit more, you have a little bit more understanding, and they go, good. Now that you have this, you're ready for this. And then you work through these things, now you're ready for this. And the more that you learn, what begins to happen is you realize there's more to learn. The more light, the more insight, the more understanding we're given, the more we realize we need this light. We need this understanding. We need more of this. This is what Jesus is saying. The more you orient your life around this power, this life, this word of God that permeates the entire universe, the more you are going to open yourself to it. And the more you open yourself to it, the more of it you will get. And the more you get, the more you will open yourself to it. It's just this circle that goes around and around. And for those of you who, when it comes to this word, go, hmm, you're going to lose that too. Because it'll do nothing for you. Again, Jesus is saying, the sower's out there, recklessly throwing this thing everywhere. It permeates the universe. What will you do with it? Jesus is on this roll, and then his mom and his brother show up, and they're like, hey, Jesus, your mom and your brothers are outside, and he doesn't even move. He just says, my mother and my brothers and my sisters are those who do the will of God. Those who hear the word and put it into practice. I think this, that statement would have like made the whole room silent. I think everyone out there would have like taken like a, this feels awkward. Because your family in that culture, your entire life was centered on that. You took your name from that. You took your trade from that. Your sense of identity and everything else. Like family was central to the ancient Jewish culture. And Jesus says, no, you know what's central? People who hear this word that permeates the universe. That's what brings us together. Which in that context is a massive leap forward. Because up until that time, people had been connected through tribe and blood and family and kin. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Like all of that tribalism, no, that's... It's about people who are responding to this word that permeates the universe. That's what family looks like. Out here in Denver, where no one is from here, people always use the term their chosen family. Have you heard this term? My chosen family, the people that I come out here and I connect with. This idea was birthed actually out of the Jewish context. You can begin seeing inklings of it in the Hebrew scriptures and Jesus just names it. He says this whole thing about like just because your blood and family and share a last name and an umbilical cord, you don't share an umbilical cord, but you know what I mean. Like all of that, that's what makes us, that's what brings us together. There's almost this invitation of like, no, my family's not just outside, my family's here. My family's with anyone who's hearing this power that permeates the universe. For Jesus, what seems to matter is hearing, orienting your life around something, embodying this idea that we're constantly coming into contact with in all spaces and in all places. This word that we learn from when we look out at the vast expanse of the sky, when we look into the eyes of a child, when we hear, hear words of love or hear words of challenge from a friend who deeply loves us, these are all words are you hearing? 
You see, Jesus doesn't say, have you mentally ascended to the right list of beliefs that will get you acceptance into a particular group of people who call themselves a church? He says, no, are you willing to live those beliefs? Jesus doesn't say, hey, you know what we need? You need to have the perfect response to every question so that you have all the answers. Now, Jesus is like, are you willing to live the answers? It's not taking the right stand on issues. Now, Jesus is like, are you willing to stand in the right place? It's a way of life. It's an orientation to the world in which we live. A few weeks ago, I was with a friend of mine, and he's one of those friends where we always end up in real, like, deep philosophical conversations. And he said to me, he said, hey, have I told you about where I'm at spiritually these days? I said, no, you haven't. He said, I'm... I think I'm at the best place I've ever been in my life. And I said, well, tell me, what's going on? And he said, I just finally got to the place where I settled kind of on two things. I think there's a God who's endlessly knowable, who's like so big we can't even imagine what this God is like. And I think the teachings of Jesus are really worth following and orienting my life around. He said, I don't even know if I can call myself a Christian. I don't know what to do with all the institution stuff. But man, it's, it's been incredible. He's like, I've actually asked myself at times, like, well, what would Jesus do? And then I try to do it. And I said, that sounds refreshingly simple. Because it's this idea of, like, we're responding to something. All of us are responding to something. All of us are orienting our lives around someone or a number of some things. And Jesus is saying, well, hey, that word is out there everywhere. It's fallen all over the place on all kinds of soil. The question is, what will you do with it? Will you hear? Will you embody? Will you live it out? How will you respond to the power, to the life, to the breath of God that permeates all things. Whoever has ears to hear, Jesus said, let them hear. Let's pray together. God, would you give us ears to hear? Would you give us eyes to see the way in which your word permeates all things? Would you give us gratitude for you, the sower, who throws this everywhere with reckless abandon, longing for us to hear. We pray these things together in the strong name of Jesus. And all my friends said,